subject. The first thing is that in the depending <coughs> it goes, it go, does not um, address contact actually, it just goes right away to mentality and materiality. And also that it goes from consciousness back to mentality and materiality, which is different as it usually is. And I have already explained that. Another thing that's different is that the Buddha talks about descriptions and considerations of self. Now I've already talked about that and explained that, the consideration of self. And um, as we, when we will talk about the Noble Eightfold Path, that description of self will come back uh, as another aspect of that. And the another thing which is quite different is that when, we f when he finishes with talking about feeling and the pathway for designation and language and description, then he goes to the seven stations of consciousness. Now these seven stations of consciousness, of course, are described in many different suttas, uh, but always in a different way. This is the only time that they're described like this. And the seven stations of consciousness have several implications. They have the implication of our consciousness as we are now. They have the implication of different realms of being, and they have the implication of the jhanas. So I'll just read what the Buddha says about each one of them. It's called the seven stations for consciousness. Ananda, there are these seven stations for consciousness and two bases. What are the seven? There are, Ananda, beings who are diverse in body and diverse in perception such as human beings, all different bodies and different ideas. Some gods, some beings in the lower realms. This is the third station for consciousness. Well, that's the kind of consciousness that everybody knows inside out. That's a marketplace consciousness. That's the one everybody lives with constantly from morning to night and tries to get away from it through meditation. But that's the one that is totally known to every human being and totally unsatisfactory, of course. But very few human beings know that it's entirely up to them to change that consciousness. We don't have to stick around with it. It's also the kind of consciousness that the beings in the lower realms have. Now again, all the different realms, 31 of them, are levels of consciousness. So we've got hell realms. Well, that's a level of consciousness. And if we behave badly enough, we can experience it right here and now. And if we can't get our negativities out of the mind, we can experience it right here and now. So we don't have to wait to go down below there, wherever that's supposed to be. Now there are beings <coughs> in the hell realms that uh, remain there. They have that kind of consciousness. It's not that it's permanent, they can get out, but they have a sort of found an abode there. And that's happening. We know all about these things. We can actually have their books written about it. And uh, then there are lower realms, which are <coughs> called the hungry ghosts and the titans. Well, there are two different levels, and the hungry ghosts are people, or no, I should say beings, that are so full of craving that they can never get enough. 
and they really have a dreadful time. And uh, one could say that on our level here, the one that we know, such beings very often become drug addicts or alcoholics. The craving is so strong, there's no way that they can ever have any satisfaction. They are depicted, and you can find them on that picture in the back there, as uh, sort of like stick beings that have very fat tummies sticking out and tiny little throats. So they are terribly hungry, but they've got such tiny little throats and tiny little mouths they can never get enough in. Well, that's just a symbolic way of making them appear. Um, and uh, <coughs> these, and then there's the Titans. The Titans are sort of gods. This is what he's, the Buddha is saying here, some gods. But um, we always have the idea that gods are something wonderful. And uh, maybe we even think there's one that's looking after everything. But that isn't working out, we might have noticed by now. But um, <coughs> the, uh, these gods, titans, are um, forever fighting. Well, there are people around that are forever fighting. And uh, it's, uh, they're very strong. The titans have a sort of a strength, and uh, the strength is not used for anything <coughs> constructive. It's used for something destructive. And we have seen that in this century plenty of times. Strength, power being used destructively. That's titans. And then the next thing is animals. Well, it's the only ones that most people can see other than human beings. And so <coughs> we have this idea there is nothing else. There are humans and animals. Because we have the idea that everything that exists we can see with our physical eye. Well, obviously, that's absurd. We can see with our mental eye so many things that we can never see with our physical eye, never mind anything other than that. Even with the mental eye, when we have some uh, abstract ideas, we can't see them. They're just abstract ideas. So whatever is with the physical eye is very limited. So that's human beings and animals. And again, it's a level of consciousness, and uh, there are, of course, human beings that have that kind of level. There's no doubt about that. So we can say from that, maybe we can understand that every realm of existence is a level of consciousness. And this is what the Buddha is saying here, and he's saying more than that, but we'll get into that in a minute. He's showing that there are many levels, and these are all available to us. We can get to the lower ones. Very easy, no problem at all. And we can get to the higher ones. Maybe not quite that easy, but also no problem. It's entirely up to us, namely to what we carry around in the mind, day in and day out. And the more we get attached to what we carry around in the mind because we believe it, the more we will get stuck on that level of consciousness. So that's one aspect of... And he's putting it into seven, not because the 31 realms are very often divided into seven. And if you look in that picture later, you will see that there are probably, I don't know, I can't see it from here, but there probably are seven divisions. And all the different realms that exist are very often put into those seven. And there are first 
these lower ones, that's one. And then we come to the human one, that's two. And uh, from those 31, we are number five from the bottom with the human consciousness. So if anybody will ever get surprised again about what goes on in the world, they've forgotten what they've heard here. They haven't even paid attention. Number five from the bottom, and that's the human consciousness. So we have directly below us the animals, and I'm sure we have all encountered uh, human beings who have acted like animals <coughs> at some time in their lives. It's not difficult to encounter them like that. So, and even lower than that, than titans, fighting, strength, destructive strength, and then the craving, and then below that, the hellish um, place where the suffering is very, very great, all levels of consciousness. So that's number one and number two. But what it also means is this is the first station for consciousness, the Buddha says. So this is the worldly consciousness. This is where we think the world's going to do it for us. If everything works out fine, if nobody's going to be nasty, if nobody is going to take our money away, if we will stay healthy and don't get any back pains or whatever it may be, everything is going to be wonderful. Well, if we still believe that, we haven't listened properly. So that's the worldly consciousness. And in that world, we are, if we try to find the satisfaction, then of course we probably wouldn't be meditating because even the attempt to meditate is already an admission, hopefully, that the world hasn't got it. It's a very low consciousness. If you just look at what I call the marketplace, if you look at the um, uh, economic um, um, machinations in the world, if you look at the war machine, if you look at everything that is really happening, really happening, not just when we're sitting nicely and having a cup of coffee, but what's really happening in the world, you can see that the human and worldly consciousness is totally unsatisfactory. It cannot bring satisfaction. And that one really has to work oneself out of that. So then comes the next one. There are beings who are diverse in body, but identical in perception, such as the gods of the Brahma order, who are generated through the first jhana. This is the second station for consciousness. Now, the Buddha takes big uh, leaps there, because he wants to put it all into the seven stations of consciousness and two bases, which means the eight jhanas. So he's putting all these different realms which he explains in other <coughs> discourses in the number as no, 31 he puts them into uh, a lump so this one here and he's got a little table here showing what they are somewhere here put them all together the second ones they are they are called the great brahmas the gods of brahmas ministries and gods of brahmas retinue now you have to remember this is indian these are Indian explanations of what this is. But what it actually means is that these are beings that have the ability to generate and cultivate and depend on the four Brahma Viharas. Now you've all heard 
hopefully, the four Brahma Viharas, Metta Karuna Mudito Pekka, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are called the four Brahma Viharas, the abodes of the gods. Brahma is gods, Vihara is abode, which means if we cultivate them and have them in our heart, and as human beings we have all the possibilities for all of the consciousnesses. We can have them all. And we often have ten of them or more in one, in one hour or less. So these, that consciousness of the Brahma Viharas brings one to a state of feeling very much at ease you can say that is like having a paradisical feeling within. It's at the same time, it also is likened to the first jhana. Because the first jhana, when it's done properly, has also that kind of reflection afterwards that this was quite um, wonderful and beautiful and desirable and uh, that this is a totally different consciousness from the one that we usually have. Now the consciousness that one has in meditation when we put our attention on the breath is a kind of a um, direction and a kind of tension and a kind of trying and uh, having a, a certain hopefulness that's going to stay there and all that. Well, with the first jhana that all changes and I have explained that already, that one passes the threshold of method. Until then, it's all method and fairly meaningless. The only thing that it does, if one tries, is it makes good karma. There's no doubt about it. As long as we're trying, we're making good karma, because we have a valid intention. It's a meritorious intention to meditate. And with that, as soon as the mind can stay on the meditation subject for a moment, there is also that ability to let go of thought and torpor and let go of impurity. But it isn't a change of consciousness. And it certainly has nothing to do with the proper purification which only takes place in the meditative absorptions. We will see at the end of all this um, that the meditative absorptions are uh, the necessary ingredient for the pathway, as the Buddha will uh, explain. They are the necessary ingredient to get the pathway to the point where one can actually have sufficient purification. So the Brahma Viharas, that inner cultivation of love and compassion, and sympathetic joy and equanimity makes it possible also to get into first jhana. Loving kindness is one of the best entrance possibilities. It um, is very often used by people, particularly those who don't go any further. It's very often used as an entry, but it's an excellent entry. So the loving kindness, which generates warmth in the heart region, can then be used, that warmth can be used as our entry point into the first jhana. So you can see the connection between this level of consciousness, which the Buddha calls the gods of the Brahma order, who are generated through the first jhana.
So this is the level of consciousness, the level of consciousness of loving-kindness, which generates first jhana, which is the Brahma-vihara. And this takes us away from worldly consciousness. Worldly consciousness has never yet, ever, been satisfactory to anyone. It can't, because it's always connected with craving. I want something better than what I've got. Or, if I've got something nice, I want to keep it. So there's always wanting it, so it can never be satisfying. So here, this is our first step into a level of consciousness which goes beyond the marketplace reality, which most people think is the only one. The next level of consciousness that the Buddha talks about is there are beings who are identical in body but diverse in perception, such as the gods of streaming radiance. This is the third station for consciousness. Now we have to remember that the first station is the worldly level, where there are also the lower beings. So what we've got to is the second jhana. The second jhana of gods of streaming radiance. Now this is a totally different way of explaining the jhanas. The Buddha never does this, um, hardly ever does this in any of the discourses. Usually he just says, this is the second jhana, and then you experience this, and it's the third one. Here he makes it equivalent to the levels of consciousness in other realms. And these other realms also, now this is also an important point, if one stops at any of those levels of jhana, and uh, of course has not let go of craving, this is exactly where one gets reborn, if the jhana has been perfected. So if we have perfected second jhana, have um, the joy as an overriding emotion and meditation subject that and that is being done at the time of our death that's definitely where rebirth takes place and this can be very easily also not this kind of body because when we have identical in body diverse in perception gods of streaming radiance that level is no longer this gross body but it's a much more subtle body um, there are many ways, words of using that, but it's just a body which doesn't have so much dukkha. There's far less dukkha there. And there's far less dukkha because the level of consciousness is joy. And the level of consciousness of second jhana is joy. Now, anyone who does jhanas and doesn't do second is missing out on the most important one because this is actually our entry point into getting further because if we don't enjoy what we're doing we are not going to do it so joy is the m very important um, point where we can see that it is possible to go further now people very often find this very difficult to have joy in second jhana because it's very unknown to have joy without outer conditions. Most people have never experienced that in their lives and so they don't even know what, what to look for, where to go, what is this joy. The other aspect which we have to also take into account is the fact that these jhanas bring 
particular insight. And the Buddha talks about that at the end. Because if the jhanas are done properly and to the point where they are done with real depth, they bring enlightenment. But enlightenment doesn't come just from sitting nicely in joy. It's impossible. Enlightenment comes from the fact that one has seen what all this is all about. And it has to have reference to dependent arising. That's why the Buddha has put it at the end of dependent arising. So joy, second jhana, which is the, uh, the, they're called gods of streaming radiance, it feels radiant. The second jhana has to have a feeling of radiance about it. And it has to have the understanding at the end, not while one is doing it, that this is independent of outer conditions and therefore disenchantment with the world has to set in. Disenchantment in Pali is Nibida and it's one step before being able to have the cut-off point. The cut-off point is the next one, as Viraga, that's um, dispassion. But first has to come disenchantment with the world. And disenchantment will only come when there's something better. Because as long as one only knows what the world has to offer, one's going to buy it. Somehow or other, one can afford it. And then one's going to get it, and if it doesn't work out, one's going to try something else. But if there's something entirely b different and much, much better available within oneself, inside of oneself, then, of course, the mind can quickly realize that to be independent of outer condition is the first step into freedom. Because independence is freedom. As long as we're dependent, we are really slaves. And what are we slaves to? Our sense contacts. They're supposed to be nice. And that includes the mind contacts. Well, nobody ever manages them to have them all nice. They just don't appear that way. They appear as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. That's their nature. So when we are able to have the entry into this, then a totally different realization arises. Now anyone who takes meditation seriously or even halfway seriously can be concentrated enough for that. All one has to do is let the world be. As I said at the beginning of the course, they're perfectly happy to get on without us. They've been doing it for weeks now, and nobody's complaining. So why are we trying to be with the world if they are not trying to be with us? What's so important over there? Somebody who didn't do the right things decades ago, or somebody who didn't do the right thing yesterday, or something that's supposed to happen Next week, that's past and future. Be with it now. Anyone who takes meditation even halfway seriously can get enough concentration to be able to get into first and second jhana. First and second and third are really not very, very difficult. But, okay, there's a but. One has to be able to give oneself. If one can't give oneself, it's one's constantly holding back, trying to be me, 
and trying to have all these ideas about me, it's not possible. One has to be able to give oneself totally to what one is doing, without any holding back, without any ideas, just falling into it. And that is where the ego is constantly in strife. The ego that constantly keeps talking and saying, I'm this, I'm that, I want this, I want that. I'd like to be concentrated, but... And then, but, dot, 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 whatever the but is. Giving oneself. Now, a person who can easily do loving-kindness will find this much easier. A person who has difficulty with loving-kindness will find this much more difficult. And as I said before, loving-kindness can be a very good entry point and is often used for that. Not only for that, obviously, but loving-kindness meditation is often used as an entry point. Now, the very first of the jhanas, which I want to go back to now in order to make it complete, is sensation. And, as I said, easy to do if you can do loving-kindness. And again, we know from that, when we've done it, that there's no need to <clears throat> constantly have the worldly consciousness because it's totally unsatisfactory. There's no need to have something that's totally unsatisfactory. What for? Why do people hang on to these things that are so unsatisfactory and complain and, uh, and are unhappy about it and have all sorts of problems with a capital P? Just let it all go. We don't have to have it. It's totally unnecessary. So all we have to do is get either have the loving-kindness concentrated enough so that the warmth of it arises or keep concentrated enough on any other meditation subject so that the mind stops telling stories. The storytelling of the mind is nothing but an ego confirmation. Look at me, I know. That's all it is. The storytelling of the mind is just reaffirming that there is an ego and a me. And the more we do that, the less happiness we can have. Because with that, we don't get the happiness. So these are the first three levels of course, stations, Buddha calls it, uh, levels of consciousness. This is the translation. Now then, the next one. There are beings who are identical in body and identical in perception, such as the gods of refulgent beauty. This is the fourth station for consciousness. Now, this refulgent beauty gods, they are a little higher than these others. Now, the word god is actually a translation of either Deva or Brahma. And usually, it's, it's divided into Deva realms and Brahma realms. In this case, it isn't. Now, whether that's the, med the translator's fault or not, I don't know. But the Deva realms are the ones, and I'll explain that right now because I am talking about the different realms and levels. They are right above us. And number six, the one right above us, are the Bhuma Devas. And Bhuma means earth. They're the earth Devas. And they're the ones that sit in cabbages and live in trees, and people in Fintown have been seeing them for years. And uh, they're the kind of Devas that people can see. Not everybody, of course, but some people can see them. And very often there are lots of fairy tales and stories and fables and folk fables about them, where there are little gnomes or things like that, and uh, 
that help people and uh, which these stories have, of course, a basic in, basis in truth. The Bhuma Devas are Earth Devas. The word Deva means a being which is in a uh, very, um, very uh, subtle body and of a higher level than what the human being is. Now, after that, there come many Deva realms. They come from number six, and they go through number 27. 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31 are the Brahma realms, the four highest. And uh, they are actually called the Brahma realms because they also have no bodies at all, no bodies, just minds. But here is uh, explained differently because the Buddha brings it down to seven levels. So he doesn't bring it out into the, <laughs> into the devas, but he just talks about these different... Well, here he's got gods of streaming radiance, immeasurable radiance, limited radiance. And then abundant fruit, refulgent beauty, immeasurable beauty, and limited beauty. Well, it's third and fourth jhana. And as limited as it may be, then it is not so, not so satisfying. But it has with it a totally different ambience than what we usually have. The third jhana, the mind has been uh, completely infused with joy. And therefore, there are no wishes left. And so it is a state of wishlessness, contentment, which is due to the fact that nothing can be thought of at the time that one would want. This is a totally different state and a totally different level of consciousness from any kind of consciousness that we usually have. Usually we want something. And if we don't, we fall asleep. That's the two kinds of things that we usually do with our mind. We want something or we fall asleep. So, um, as, we, as we have here total awareness and become aware of the fact that it is possible to want nothing, it's the first time it's a new experience and it brings with it a kind of inner peace that has never been known before. And I'm talking about when it's the first time. That inner peacefulness has never been known before because we never knew what it's like not to want anything. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So, therefore, we can see that this is on an equal level as having these um, devas, uh, the higher level of devas, who are still in the, what are called the karma-loka, which loka is location, realm. And karma is K-A-M-A, not karma, but it is the sense or the sensual realm. Now, we are steeped in the sensual realm. We are really drowning in it. And all our, all our outer conditions in the world are nothing but trying to drown us in it. But even the devas of the higher realms, and these are already the higher devas, are still in the sensual realm and they are wishless because they can get anything they want. And the story says 
that there is a wish-fulfilling gem. And sometimes we can see Buddha statues standing, uh, mostly when there's a standing Buddha statue coming out of Burma, but now being made in Thailand, a wooden one which has a sort of glittering insets of glass which is supposed to look like jewels. And in one hand, usually the right one, there's a sort of like a, a seed. Well, that's a wish-fulfilling gem. And it's held with two or three fingers. And they're supposed to just rub that and get whatever they want. And that is, of course, has nothing to do with enlightenment, mind you. Uh, nothing at all. But uh, it is the equivalent to the third jhana. Because we've got exactly what we wanted. We've got the joy, so now we don't have to have any wishes left. So these are the, the, these devas that are in the Kama Loka, in the sensual realm, but they have a really nice life. And uh, also the story says that because they don't have any dukkha, or very little anyway, practically none, they don't practice. So you can now also uh, liken that to people whose lives are, maybe they're enormously rich, and they are healthy, and uh, they do what they please, and they don't know that they're having dukkha, so of course they don't practice. Why should they? Everything is all right. So that kind of um, uh, level of consciousness where everything is fine because you can just get it. Naturally, it's not a very high level of consciousness, but then it's only the third jhana. And the same thing here, it goes with this, uh, this level, is also including the fourth jhana. And we can see also here in the commentarial exposition on this part of the sutta that the first four jhanas are not being um, are very much um, appreciated. It's the next four that are being appreciated. That's very interesting because usually that isn't the case. Usually they are all yeah, appreciated as a, a, a concentrative attainment. But here, the first four are not considered to be anything special. Well, they aren't really. I mean, they are what the mind can do. But the fourth one is included here in this one, that this is the fourth station of consciousness. And now the fourth one, which then deepens this peacefulness, of course there are no wishes there, and deepens the peacefulness, then would be on an equivalent level as these higher devas who are immeasurably beautiful and refulgent beauty and abundant fruit. So that's the fourth station. So they are <coughs> it's a higher level than the radiance one. There's, uh, there's uh, three different kinds of radiance and there are four different kinds of beauty. So this is uh, the fourth uh, a jhana which has when one comes out of it that absolutely and utterly beautiful experience of having had complete peace. Now this fourth jhana also has the uh, ability to give the mind mental energy because nothing is happening. The mind doesn't have to do anything. See, when we think then the mind is engaged and has to work. And when we sleep, the mind is dreaming and is working. So it's constantly working. It never gets any moment where it has really a regeneration or a resurrection 
of its energy. So the fourth jhana is that particular uh, jhana where the resurrection and regeneration of energy takes place. So that when the mind comes out of that, it has a feeling of being very sharp, very clear, um, not bothered, not having to worry about anything, and uh, being able to penetrate. It has that feeling about it. So that's a very beautiful feeling. So we have that liking there of fourth jhana and fourth level of consciousness. And uh, it's an interesting um, analogy that the Buddha is making here because, again, also, it applies to the fact that if one dies in any of those states, these are the states one gets reborn in, which later on the Buddha, of course, explains it's not desirable at all because it's just as impermanent as we are. It lasts longer in some stages where they're longer living than we are. But again, because they are much better concentrated than we are, the longer life does not seem any longer. Now, you have all probably noticed by now that if you really get concentrated, the hour goes by very fast. And if you're not concentrated at all, you think it's practically half a day and you wish you hadn't come. So it's a matter, time is not a constant and not a given. It is depending on concentration. And in the higher realms, the concentration is much better and much stronger, obviously, because of course Jhana has brought one there. So this enormous time span that these beings have is not considered to be very long. But there are many stories about this time span. And now we come, now these first four are the, the jhanas of the, Im, the, Im, the fine material realm. Now the fine material realm is number one to four. And this fine material realm is considered to be very close to what we are experiencing in the human consciousness on a different level, of course. But... We all know what it's li uh, like to have pleasant sensation. We also know what it's like to be joyful, even though the kind of joy we have otherwise is not comparable. But it's still no, we know what it's nice to have some joy. And we also know what it's like to be contented. And we also know what it's like to be peaceful at times. I mean, we've all managed to have a few moments of peacefulness in our lives. So although these jhana states are much, much stronger and independent of outer conditions, they still have reference to the human condition and because of that are not considered to be sufficient for enlightenment if there is to be an enlightenment which is the most desirable one, which is on both levels. Now, Again, the Buddha says that there is through wisdom the possibility of enlightenment even after the lower jhanas, but the higher jhanas bring with it an enlightenment which is complete, a, a totality of enlightenment which has with it the letting go of all um, clingings, of all conditions which are possible to have. So this is the ideal one. He calls it, There is no other liberation in both ways higher or more sublime. So that's 
when he talks about the higher jhanas, but it's possible also with the lower ones. Now, after having done, been able to get into the lower ones, into the first four, that too is not enough, getting into them. What is said is that not only has one to be able to get in and out at any time one wishes and stay in them as long as one wants to and be able to get into any one of them without having to go through all of them. One also has to experience them to the fullness so that one is able to stay in them long enough so that in this liberation of the higher jhanas, one no longer has this idea of this body. In other words, it brings with it the complete liberation from the body. And then the understanding of that brings the liberation of mind. So it's not only just getting in and out or hitting it by accident. It is a pathway which has to have such depth to it that it's possible to get away from the wrong views which we have already discussed. So then after one has been able to go through the four, then comes the other four, the next four. And the first one, the Buddha says, there are beings who, through the complete surmounting of perceptions of material form, the passing away of perception of impingement, sense impingement, and non-attention to perceptions of diversity, contemplating space is infinite, arrive at the base of the infinite space. This is the fifth station for consciousness. Now, this is not uninteresting because it's a little more elaborate than what the Buddha usually says about the fifth jhana. Very often, most of the time, he says, fifth jhana is the base of infinite space, period. And that's it. So here he goes a little further, and that's not quite, it's quite interesting. The mind surmounts the perception of material form, this one here. One surmounts the perceiving of this form. And it can very well be that the mind starts at this material form and goes outward. And as it goes outward, it's, there's no perception of impingement, there's no sense contact. Nothing. In other words, no thinking, because that's also sense contact. Obviously, there's no seeing, no hearing, and all the rest of that, but there's no impingement of senses. And then, not attending to the perception of diversity. And there he gives that in another sutta he mentions, um, not paying attention to the diversity of there are trees and forests and there are houses and villages and there are people and there is... Uh, sun, moon, and stars, and uh, there are rivers and mountains, uh, that all just passes away as if one is uh, passing over it. And, well, one could actually say, which he didn't, that one might be in a jetliner where everything is gone on 35,000 feet up, up in the air. There's nothing to be seen. One has passed away all the perceptions of diversity. All you see is cloud. If you see anything, sometimes it's just dark in the night. So that is, an, um, of course, an uh, analogy which the Buddha couldn't make because in those days there weren't such things. But we can experience that. So the perceptions of diversity are gone. The uh, perception of the material form is gone. 
and the sense impingement is gone. And uh, from a practical standpoint, it very often starts at the body and goes outward, out and up. It usually has a movement which goes out and up, and with, with that movement, one arrives at the infinity of space. Now that, of course, that particular um, experience has a much stronger insight. Now, as I told you, the first four, you know that sense contact can't bring the joy that you can find in here, that only peace and contentment is only possible if one is wishless. So maybe that would help to drop a few of the wishes, especially about how things should be different from the way they are. That's one of the most important ones to drop. But it's still all on a level of relating to what's happening whereas infinite space does not relate to anything that's happening. Infinite space is somewhere else. And that relationship that we have is in the mind, and the mind has the ability to be conscious of that. It's, it's where the mind goes. And the, um, the experience of that brings a totally different insight. It has within it inbuilt the factor that there isn't any personal body to be found. Now, although I told you to put a zipper in front and take all the bits and pieces out and have a look and see which one you are, that still isn't enough. But the, because the minute you put the bits and pieces back in and put the zipper up again, it's you again, isn't it? And you walking around, and you having knee aches, and you wanting to eat, or you wanting to, to drink, or you being tired, or whatever it may be. So it doesn't really have the impact, and that's why it doesn't go without jhanas. But when you're in the in infinity of space and there's nobody there, it's impossible not to know that this particular body, which we call me, is just an optical illusion because everything is contained within the infinity of space. And it's a personal experience. Nobody needs to explain it. Everybody experiences it by themselves. Now, of course, wisdom is the understood experience. So if we have the experience of infinity of space and can out, come out of that and say, wasn't that nice? Maybe I'll go in again. Well, you know, there's no wisdom to that. But most intelligent people, in fact, all intelligent people, would take this experience as a uh, trigger for seeing where was I in this? There wasn't anybody there. Very interesting. And as one does it more often, and obviously one has to do this more often, one can't do this just once. It's not a once-only uh, attempt. As one does this more often, it becomes quite clear that there's nobody there. None. There aren't any trees, there aren't any other people, there aren't any cats or dogs or houses. There's nothing. There's just space. And within that space, everything is contained as existence, but it need not be referred to, because that, what we refer to here as existence, we know that already. It's not satisfactory anyway. We've done that. We've referred to cats and dogs and other people and houses and cars and food. We've done this all the time. And what is it? It's nothing but manifestations of elements. Whereas within space, we have come to the fifth element. Now that's the fifth element of materiality. Space is that also. And you can see that within yourself, there's also space. 
So that is also contained in everything. But here we are experiencing only that one. And as we experience only that one, we can see that everything is contained therein and nothing really has intrinsic importance and intrinsic significance because it's all within the whole. And therefore, that is the first step into a very um, insightful result of meditation. The others are also insightful, but this one is the first one that takes one beyond. And this is what we're trying to do, to get beyond. And this particular discourse has no, nothing else in mind except to get one beyond, to get one out of the human consciousness and the attention to all these little things that are never satisfying and get beyond all that. So this is the first one that gets one beyond. The other four still help one a great deal, but they don't take us beyond. And if we don't get beyond, of course, we're always going to be bothered with the same stuff again. And I think that in, especially in a meditation course such as this, it's not very difficult to see that one gets bothered with the same stuff over and over and over. And if one doesn't get tired of that, I wonder why. It's always the same stuff over and over and over. Either the body is hurting or the mind is hurting. Either way. And then sometimes it stops and one says, hooray, and then it starts again. And the same stuff over and over. Must be really boring, doesn't it? But why don't we get bored with that? People get bored with meditating, but they don't get bored with that. I think one should get bored with that and not with the meditation. So now, here we don't even have an explanation of what kind of beings these are because we have come to the um, immaterial realm. This is, this is the first one of the immaterial realm. And in the immaterial realm, the Buddha doesn't speak of beings because there's no material to them. There aren't the other elements anymore. There's no physical body anymore. So he doesn't talk of beings. He just talks of the base of infinity of space as the fifth station, uh, station for consciousness. As I said before, in other discourses, he tells about the Brahma realms, the four highest realms, where there are no bodies, but where there's mind. And he tells about the fact that these realms are, um, how to say, <laughs> inhabited by beings who have uh, the high attainment of the immaterial jhanas and also a high attainment of purity, of course, and are very long-lived eons. And because of that, they think they're omniscient. And because they can read anybody's mind, because they only consist of mind, and because they can do practically anything, they also think they're omnipotent. And that's where the God idea comes from. But in the last analysis, they're also impermanent. Even though they stay there for eons, they're also impermanent. And if they don't get enlightened in those four Brahma realms, they have to come down here again and do it all over again. Perish the thought. <laughs> and so that's uh, in the higher realms. Then we have beings who, having completely surmounted the base of the infinity of space, 
contemplating consciousness is infinite, arrive at the base of the infinity of consciousness. This is the sixth station for consciousness. Now, there's always the word contemplating in there, but it's in brackets, so I have the suspicion the translator put it in. Um, actually, what happens between fifth and sixth is not uninteresting. The fifth jhana, which is that infinity of space, has this enormous breadth and width and uh, size. I mean, there's just no limit to that. And obviously, a consciousness that can partake of that or can become aware of this limitlessness has to be equally limitless. So, that's quite obvious. So what one can do from fifth to sixth is either just change one's focus of attention from the space that one is aware of to that which is aware of the space, which is limitless consciousness at the time. Simple, isn't it? And because it's limitless consciousness, we can also do something else, just as we have done with the limitlessness of space. We start with that non-perception of materiality which comes from the body. We can go to our own awareness consciousness and fan out into infinity. And as the consciousness goes into infinity, then, of course, it is as if there is everything within one's grasp and reach. And so this is very often, these two, particularly the consciousness one, is very often in Hinduism considered to be the highest attainment, often called tattvamasi, I am that, because one is that, and that is me, and there's nobody in there, so it is considered to be a total union. The Buddha said that wasn't enough, there has to be something else which we will hear about, but it is a union. And although union is not the last step, it's certainly a step worth taking. Now, the consciousness, which is limitless and which is all over everything, obviously hasn't got a personal consciousness in it. No doubt that that isn't there. And having no personal consciousness and having no personal body, well, me has got a real dent in it, hasn't it? It finally has been experienced that this me must be some kind of aberration of the mind. Now, I have already explained to you without these jhanas, by going through this sutta, how these aberrations of mind arise. Now, if you remember what I was talking about last night, and I know it's difficult to remember, but it is essential, because if I didn't think it was essential, I wouldn't sit here and talk, we'd just meditate. But seeing that I think it's essential, that's why I'm telling you these things. Our aberration of mind is that we put something into it that isn't there. We've got a feeling and we think it's me. We've got a resentment and we think it's mine. And we've got a husband and we think it's mine. And we've got a child and we think it's mine. And we've got an idea in the head and we think that's mine. And we're meditating, we think that's me. And we put that in there. We've put it in there. That's the aberration of mind. That's what I was explaining yesterday when we look at an earthquake and say tragedy instead of saying earth element, fire element coming together and exploding. We don't see the real thing, we see that which we make up. And what we make up is made up out of craving. So here we have the personal experience. A personal experience that we don't have to make up anything. There is space and there is consciousness. But there isn't me in space and there isn't me in consciousness. There just is. 
And this is, of course, a very important point in the development of the meditation. Again, just as it was the second one, the joy one from the fine material ones. Here we've got the second one of the immaterial ones, which are really a breakthrough. The inner joy is a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough from getting away from all this stuff out there. Not that we're not going to have it. We're going to have it. It's there. It's there. You can, we can't avoid it. But we're not going to run after it. We don't really need it. It's there. It's available. I'll never forget walking through uh, one of the shopping malls in Hamburg with, uh, with a very, very nice uh, Thai monk uh, who had just come for the first time in his life to Germany. And he looked at all these wonderful uh, windows in the shops. And they have the most expensive stuff there. And it's really beautiful stuff they have. And then he looked at me and he said, Isn't it marvelous how many things there are that I don't need? <laughs> <laughs> One doesn't need it. It's there. And if it's available and somebody brings it, it's wonderful. And if they don't bring it, it's just as wonderful. So it isn't that the things disappear. They're there. But the mind doesn't have to latch on to them. And when the mind no longer, longer latches on to them, it's not really renunciation. Renunciation is through hard work saying, I won't have it. I'm not going to have this because it's, uh, I'm going to really uh, discipline myself. This is no longer renunciation. This is just, it's, it's who, who wants it? A universal consciousness has no interest in all this stuff out there totally disinterested. So these, this is a breakthrough. The breakthrough that we get from joy, which says we don't need this stuff, and the breakthrough in the second jhana of the immaterial realms where we realize it's really true. There's nobody there. It's uh, just space, space and consciousness. Now, that still doesn't have the final result, but without that, to have a final result would be extremely difficult. There are people who can do it, but they're very rare. It's, uh, there are people who can do it without the, fine, uh, the immaterial realms. But when we do get to the immaterial realms and we have become practiced at it, we can do it any time we want to. And if we can do it any time we want to, it is also a connection to a totally different state of being, because these are the higher realms of being also. So we don't have to be this miserable human being all the time that has a difficult body and a difficult mind. We don't have to be that all the time. We can actually be something else if we, if we please. And if we please that, we also know that at that time we still want to be someone else. We haven't let go of being, but we certainly transcended the human level. So we are on the stations of consciousness. It's not finished yet. I think I'll finish that tomorrow because there's more to this. There are more stations of consciousness and then there come the emancipations which are also the reference point to the stations of consciousness. And since I know how difficult it is to not only to uh, remember but also to listen for a long time, I'll... Um, I'll stop now, and if you have questions, you can ask them. Well, you just said that you could be in that, in the fifth or sixth station or jhana at any 
to me other than in a meditative situation that you can walk around in that state? Well, it's not very desirable. I might get run over, you know, by the first car that comes along. You sit yourself down and do it, you know. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not appropriate to do it at other times. And besides, somebody might talk to you and think you're, you know, a bit off. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no, uh, meditation, yes. But, you know, it's not a, not such a... Um, you know, I've got to sit and I've got to concentrate and I've got to do this and I've got to do that, nothing like it. You know, you just do it. And that's a whole different. That's what I meant, you know. Yes. Yeah. Does the Buddha say anything about beings of higher realms incarnating in the human realm as helpers to... to no, human beings uh, are not very good at that. But uh, there are certainly beings of higher realms who are very happy to help human beings. But unfortunately, they don't get much of a chance because human beings are so infused with ego that they don't let anything come through. But if you let go of the ego consciousness and uh, open yourself up, totally open yourself up, helpers are there and they're delighted to help. In fact, it says that devas, um, like to be with people who have a lot of loving kindness because the others don't smell good. <laughs> I have no idea whether this is true or not, but that's what it says. <laughs> so it certainly helps us there, yes, but they are from higher realms. And uh, once they've come back to the human realm, well, they've got to do it all over again, you know. They've got to get started all over again. Some, of course, if they're stream enterer, they have already a good start on. And uh, a non-returner doesn't come back here. An arahant doesn't come back. A once-returner comes back once. Still got a lot of work to do. Would someone say who reincarnates as a stream enter have memory of who won it or what the truth is? I wouldn't have a clue, but it certainly wouldn't have the same, wouldn't have the same difficulty getting started as everybody else. But it just still have a lot of work to do. But it understands things better, you know, and would would be more, um, you know, directional. But still, could leave out a whole lifetime and another lifetime not doing a thing. Just, you know, sense pleasure. Also possible. Anything is possible. <laughs> yes. Even for a person who's been quite new. Are there accidents where we have really less awareness than at other times, going in and out of sleep or some such, that something like this can be experienced? Yes, I have had uh, um, students that have had experienced something like that accidentally. And then, of course, having nobody to ask what it was, they didn't know what to do with it and couldn't, of course, could not uh, uh, do it again either. Well, today I had a particularly bad day. And um, I don't mind something is to go and take a nap after each, virtually after each sit. You know, I'm so tired. And um, 
I was so tired I didn't use all my earplugs and all the things I usually put in to, you know, encrust myself. And, uh, I felt as if there were no body, no body, no feeling. What am I going to do with that? <laughs> was it pleasant? I almost hate to admit that it was for pleasant. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. It was nice not to have the body hurting for a change. I figured there wasn't any body. Yeah, but that can happen from just lying down, can't it? No. <laughs> I must be very fortunate. <laughs> well, what were you what were you putting your attention on? Were you able to keep your attention on a on a pleasant feeling? <coughs> okay, well that's a short first jhana. <coughs> so next time try to stay on it longer. got to be longer, you know, not just quickly. Okay. Anything else? Yes. Since it's not desirable to be reborn in some of the higher realms, if one were uh, if one were dying, what would be the best thing to do? <coughs> Let go. <laughs> Don't want to be reborn. Let go completely. Okay, that's it, finished. No more. But even better to have done it before that, because at least you can enjoy a few years of it, you know. <laughs> if you do it at death, you don't have much time to enjoy it. <laughs> but certainly better than coming back and having to do it all over again.
it's supposed to be a very good um, a moment, the death moment, when one has, if one has, not when, if one has practiced beforehand, it's supposed to be a very good moment to be able to let go because one is actually forced to let go of the body. I mean, that's absolutely forced upon one. Now, the mind is not forced upon one, but that one can uh, do if one realizes that the next time is going to be equally much dukkha, if not more. So the possibility also exists after death. It can be done immediately after death also, when the body's already disappeared or you know, been buried or whatever is happening to it, and uh, the mind is going. But these are moments which are very, very valuable if one has practiced. Because if one hasn't practiced, the mind does not want to give up. It wants to come back and have something nicer happening. No, because it wasn't satisfied this time, so it wants to have satisfaction the next time. But if one has been able to get satisfaction out of uh, the meditative state and knows that everything else is not nothing, then it's possible. But as I said, it's preferable to do it now and have a few years to enjoy it. And Buddha did it when he was 35. So anybody who's under 35 can still copy that. Anybody? <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Um, in the Theravada tradition, um, is there um, a ceremony when somebody's dying? Um, when they're dying or after they're dead? Say, for instance, I'm helping somebody die. Okay, yes. As a Buddhist. Right. I yes. Yes, you can. There are several things that one can do, and uh, all of them can be helpful. If the person uh, is, has any kind of consciousness, and you know hearing is the last one to go, um, there are several things to do. First of all is to tell the person about all the good things they've done in their life. Because the consciousness that leaves the body and the mind that, you know, keeps going can be a very unhappy one and have a very unhappy um, passage until being reborn again. So it's very important for, that, for the dying person to have some um, remembrance of the good things they have done. Because most people are dissatisfied with what they have done in their lives and are angry at somebody or are feeling guilty about what they haven't done. Everybody has these, it's very common. So to counteract that and to tell them maybe beforehand to have found out with, uh, about the family, you know, saying, oh, you've brought up your children well and your family is happy and um, that type of thing. Anything that one can find out. Not make it up, but find out about them. That's one thing. Now, if they're Buddhists, then, of course, a different thing can be, an additional thing can be done. But if they're not Buddhist, then that additional thing would not have any impact on them. If the person who's dying is a Buddhist and is a devoted and devout Buddhist, that means really loving Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, then it's very, uh, it is the um, uh, tradition and it is very helpful to chant the qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha is what you're chanting here every morning. And if one is a devoted Buddhist, one would want to have that done in Pali because it has a beautiful sound to it. If one doesn't know what that is, it's better to do it in the person's mother tongue. And uh, it, there are stories of um, very advanced um, meditators 
who uh, don't want it chanted by someone else, they chant it themselves and then die with that chanting. Uh, it is to put the mind in that direction so that as one knows that, then the mind can let go. There's another chant which is also very uh, often used for dying people, and that's the one about anicca dukkha anatta, about impermanence dukkha and non-self. That's a, quite a long one. But this is only useful if the person is a Buddhist, because if they're not Buddhist, um, it doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't. It's not helpful. But the other one, the first thing I said, that is for everyone. That holds true for everyone. And uh, touch contact, holding the hand, holding, uh, um, you know, or stroking the the head, touch contact. Because they're afraid. They're afraid of the unknown. They're going somewhere where they're all alone. And uh, if one has touch contact, they don't feel so alone. So those two things, knowing the good things and the touch contact, it holds true for everyone. And then there's an excellent book by Stephen Levine, which is called Who Dies? And he's got a, f- a few very nice uh, guided meditations in there that one can do with dying people and not particularly for, for Buddhists. That's an excellent book, but only in English. Huh? Who dies? Who dies? Stephen Levine. But if you're doing this in Germany, you can translate it yourself. (laughs) Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Think of the four Brahma-viharas, the four supreme emotions, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, joy with others, and equanimity. And see them as the Buddha explained them as the only emotions worth having. Nothing else has any real place in our hearts. And think of your heart as yearning to be filled with love and compassion, with joy with others and equanimity. See your heart as yearning for that and then fill it with those emotions, the warmth of love, the care of compassion, the generosity of joy with others, and the peacefulness of equanimity. Fill your heart to the brim.
and now spread the love and the compassion and the joy with others and their community through this room so that there's the warmth and the care the generosity and the peacefulness of it all through this room so that everyone can partake of it And now let these four emotions, with their warmth and their caring, their generosity and their peacefulness, emanate from your heart and reach out to the people who are close to you. So that they can have part of it, without expecting that you can get the same back. Now let all your friends partake of the beautiful emanation from your heart, loving and compassionate, caring and peaceful.
Now reach out to other people you know, neighbors, people you might work with, those you meet in everyday life. Let the heart full of loving kindness and compassion reach out to all these people that you can think of. Now think of anyone towards whom you have some negative feeling in your ordinary life and don't change your heart now. Allow it to retain love and compassion, joy with others and equanimity and let those same emotions reach out to that difficult person. Now feel your heart emanating the beautiful rays of love and compassion, the warmth and the caring, the giving and the peacefulness. And let these rays go out into the world and touch people's hearts near and far. Think of people around here and then go further afield. Letting these beautiful rays and emanations from your heart go to as many hearts as you can find.
Now put your attention back on yourself and feel the warmth of loving kindness and the peacefulness of giving permeate you, fill you and surround you. The warmth in the heart brings joy and the peacefulness that surrounds you brings a feeling of security. May beings everywhere love each other. <laughs> 